the Holy Gospel according to John, the 20th chapter. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed into them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you all to be seated. So, today is Pentecost. It's a day that begins with a miracle in the first lesson where we hear of tongues of fire resting on the heads of the disciples. And people whose names I didn't have to pronounce, but thankfully Brandy did, they, they all heard what the disciples were saying in their own tongue, whether they're Parthians or Medes or Elamites or those Cretans out there. All of these people were able to hear the word of God spoken in their own language. Now, I think it's important that today has begun with a miracle because a lot of times we, we mistake what miracles are all about. It's easy to get caught up on, on the tongue of fire resting. That was the thing that caught me when I was a young person because I was a boy and so I was obsessed with fire like you know most young boys. And I was thinking how neat it was that they had this fire on top of their head. And <clears throat> later on, I connected that with Moses and the burning bush. You know, the bush that was set ablaze but was not consumed, that contained the voice of God, that called Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go. The the hard part about miracles is we get so caught up on the physicality of them that sometimes we forget what they're really about. You know, a friend of mine who was working on his master's thesis came to me and said, you know, the the feeding of the 5,000 was the biggest failure of Jesus' ministry. I said, what are you talking about? He fed 5,000 people, and I believe in John, it's plus women and children, with a couple loaves and a few fish. And and not only did he feed them, but the next day they came back and they wanted more. And he said, yeah, but remember what they wanted. They wanted more bread and more fish. And remember what Jesus said, you came back not because you wanted to see the glory of God. You came back because your bellies are full. And, you know, I can identify with that. It's, it's easy to, to get caught up in the spectacle of what the miracles are and, and forget what the miracle is really all about. You know, feeding those 5,000 people in the Gospel of John wasn't about the fact that there, weren't, there wasn't enough food and all of a sudden then there was food. It was an example to us that tells us who are God's people that what God calls to happen that God will provide the things that we need for it to happen. It's a call to us to remember what it is to, to be God's people in the world, to be the people who provide for those who don't have enough. It's a call for us to, to see the glory of God worked within us, not just God's generosity, but to trust in God's providence and presence and love. You know, I mentioned the Israelites who were led out of Egypt and 
you know, there's the first miracle, the miracle of the parting of the seas where they all walked through on dry land. But then later, they, they began to complain because they were hot and they were hungry and they were thirsty and their feet were getting tired. And if it was me, that would take about three hours. And because we all know how we get when we're hot and tired and hungry and our feet hurt. And so they were saying, at least in Egypt, we had meat to eat. At least in Egypt, we had all these things. And they were conveniently forgetting what were probably 17, 18 hour days making bricks with no straw. You know, they, they were conveniently forgetting all the problems that they had in Egypt because when we're hungry, a meal sure does sound good and we're usually willing to settle for a lot of different circumstances if we get our food. And so God fed them with manna and a Hebrew professor of mine, and I don't know whether he was joking about this or whether he was serious about this, but this might be the only thing that stuck with me. He said that manna can be trans translated as, what is this? And but God fed them. They were hungry, and they ate. And then they complained some more because they didn't have any meat. So God provided for them quails and water from rocks, and still they persisted in their complaints. All of a sudden, the Israelites sound pretty familiar, don't they? You know, they're not the only ones who have an ability to complain, even when God is providing for them. And, and what they forgot, I think, is that the freedom from captivity, that's a good thing. That's the, that's the physicality of the miracle. But the reality of what God was providing for them was God was preparing them to have a place, a home, preparing for them to have some place that they could call their own because God has provided it. The miracle is that God had given them and was giving them the things that they really needed, more than just the physical freedom from captivity an ability to live as a people who knew that they were free from the bonds of what the world could work on them. And so we come to Pentecost, a day when God's people in, in Jerusalem were living under the thumb still of Roman oppression. Pentecost, a time when the early believers in the church were stirring up trouble in their synagogues because they were, they were breaking bread and worshiping Jesus and celebrating the resurrection. We come to Pentecost, a time when the disciples, who had not so long ago been hiding for fear of the people who, who crucified Jesus, were now beginning to preach openly. And the physical miracle of this is that people were hearing things in their own language, a language that they didn't, you know, from people who didn't speak it. And they had some of the similar reactions that we might have. Obviously, these people are drunk, right? That's a pretty normal reaction to this. And Peter said what I didn't believe when I was in my early 20s. Well, it's only 9 a.m. You know, there's no way we're drunk. Now, as a 40-year-old, I can understand that you very rarely see the sunrise from the backside. You really only see it from the front side. And, and so knowing that Peter was getting on in years, I believe this, that at 9 a.m., Peter was, and the disciples were certainly not drunk. But even more, the thing that I think is so important about this isn't so much that, that people were hearing things in their language. But it's what this hearing represents. What it represents is that what our Creator says speaks the language of our hearts. The words that the Creator speaks to us are words that we know how to hear. It's not just that you know, they, they spoke their own languages and physically heard something, but they were able to hear in their hearts the thing that they were longing to hear 
that they make enough of a difference to God that God sends that message to them. And don't we all spend some time craving this, to, to be able to hear the words of God in the language that we speak, in the language that we can understand, in the language of our heart that lets us know that we are not alone and that even though we might be a little bit afraid, because God is with us, there's nothing to fear. You know, we, we hear in the 1 Corinthians 12 passage today about how there's a variety of gifts, but one spirit. And it's, it's because, like in a lot of Paul's letters, they were fighting. And, and they were fighting over, well, my gifts of the Spirit are better than your gifts. I can speak in tongues. Well, I can do this and I can do that. And Paul says, no, it's not that you have this gift and this gift is better. It's that together as the people of God, the entirety and fullness of the presence of the Spirit is among us. And in community, we experience the fullness of the gifts that that Spirit has to offer. And it's only in community that we're able to begin to experience the fullness of the presence of God. And it's in this context that when we go on to 1 Corinthians 13, when we hear the famous words, if I were to speak in tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, I'm a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. It's not about that romantic love that I feel for my wife, even though we did read this verse at my wedding like a lot of us did. You know, it's, it's about that love that God has for God's people that's experienced only in the community of people gathered in worship because it's in the community of people gathered to worship where we pray for each other, where we support each other, where we care for each other, where we lift each other up in our times of weakness and doubt and fear and pain and grief that we experience that love and that healing and that hope and that faith that God has to offer through the community gathered. I remember, remember a, well, actually the story I heard was from Herman, our bishop, and he was talking about another bishop whose wife had died. And he said that when, when she died and I went to church, I realized that as I was singing the hymns, my heart couldn't sing those hymns. I could mouth the words, but they didn't mean anything to me. And he was talking about the grief that he felt after losing his wife. And he said, after a little while, I looked around and I heard the voices of the congregation singing around me. And they were singing for me. And he said, and I realized that even though in that moment I wasn't sure how to have faith, they had faith for me. Isn't that what the community of God is really all about? That's what congregations are here for. So that when we're broken and grieving and doubting and wondering and outright disbelieving, the people of God sing for us and believe for us and have faith for us until we can sing and believe and have faith on our own again so that we can sing for those who need to be sung for and believe for those who need to have belief. All of a sudden, we see in the gift of the Spirit in Pentecost, speaking in the words that our heart longs to hear, we see it in a new light. And we see that this fire isn't the fire that singes us or that burns us, but it's the fire that warms us it's the fire that enlivens us. It's the fire that gives us the energy and the gumption to go out and share this good news with the people around us. This fire is the very stuff of life. You might have noticed in John that when Jesus appeared with the disciples, I changed a word. Anyone remember which word I changed? Which one? On. On, yeah. And what did I make it? Into. Into. 
And, the re- and I didn't come up with that. Caroline Lewis, who's a John scholar, she, I heard her say this on the podcast she's on this week, that this scene is, on the one hand, Jesus breathing into them the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's also calling us to remember what God did at creation in Genesis chapter 2, when God had formed Adam out of the, out of the dust and breathed into his lungs the breath of life. Jesus breathed into the lungs of the disciples the breath of life. You know, we, re- we remember what happened to Jesus just shortly before. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was dead and buried and was in the tomb. And it was, it was in the tomb where the disciples had lost their hope. It was in the tomb where, they, where all the expectation and the, and the promise and the, the hope for the fact that Jesus was the Messiah was buried. And it was from the tomb that God raised Jesus so that we could get the new image of what the Messiah really is. You know, we have this image of death and resurrection at play. And what do we see in that room where the disciples were hiding? In John, we have a lot of talk of darkness and light. And darkness always represents death. Darkness always represents ignorance. Darkness always represents doubt. Darkness always represents those things that hold us back from being a part of what God calls us to be. And the disciples were behind locked doors, locked away, probably in a dark room and may as well have been dead because they certainly weren't fulfilling their purpose. And here comes Jesus, the one who is creating, the one who is calling us into life, breathing into them life itself. And the next things we see them doing are the things that they become famous for doing as the disciples. Jesus breathes into them that breath, that hope, that life, that energy, that faith. And we recall another scene where someone is breathed into Ezekiel chapter 37, when the prophet is in the valley of the dry bones and God says to Ezekiel, mortal, can these bones yet live? Ezekiel says, you know, O Lord. And so, you know, in the kid's song, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones, God knits the bones back together and puts tendons and sinews and muscles and all the things that bodies need to live, like skin. And I don't know, we could go on and on about, you know, what all is contained in the body. And then finally, when the bodies are back together, but they don't have any life, the Lord asks the prophet again, can these bones live? And breathes into them the breath of life. Breathes into them the, the stuff that energizes them and that animates them, the very breath of the Spirit that God breathes into our lungs when we're baptized with water and Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's something really important that happens in Ezekiel that I think might apply to us right now. You know, it's not just the physical life that those people were receiving again as a sign of God's greatness. But what do they receive? They receive their identity. They receive a place. God promises them a home. And we see this as a theme throughout the Bible, that God, t- God promises that we will have a place. And even in the Gospel of John, what is it that Jesus promises, promises during John 16? I go to prepare a place for you. Not necessarily a physical mansion with windows and doors or, or an address but a place in the presence of God, a place where no longer can we be touched by the fears and the sorrows and the grieving that, that we experience in this life, but a place where we can hear the voice of God speaking clearly into our hearts, 
Wherever you are, I am. And I have made you and you matter. It makes a difference to hear these words in the language our hearts can hear. This is the miracle of Pentecost. It's not that all of a sudden, you know, God invented Google Translate and all of a sudden everyone can read in their own language. It's that finally, the longing of our heart is answered and quenched and we know that we are known. We remember again, remember I mentioned 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the famous part is if I speak in the tongue of mortals and angels but don't have love, but my favorite part of that verse, of that chapter, is where Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see fully, even as we are fully known. And I don't know about y'all, but one of my greatest fears is that, that I really am alone, that, that there really isn't anyone who can, who can understand me, who can get me, who can, who can accept me for who I am, because probably like a lot of people in here, if, if anyone saw what was really in my heart, how could anyone really love me? right? If anyone knew the things that went through my head, no one would respect me or care about me. You know, aren't we all kind of convinced that, you know, we may not be the worst person in the world, but we're kind of close to it because we're comparing our worst with other people's best. You know, this gift of Pentecost and being able to hear the voice of God is a gift that is the reminder that we are a people who were created with a purpose, We are a people who have a place. And we're a people who are called to proclaim that good news to the world around us. You know, the disciples were scared for a reason. They crucified Jesus. The disciples were scared rightly because they were afraid they were going to do the same thing to them. And we we have a habit all throughout human history of saying, this is the scariest time that's ever existed. I know there there are weeks where we become pretty convinced of that. You know, if, if you're in London right now where they've had two incidents where someone's driven a vehicle into a crowd and a bombing at a concert, you know, the world seems like a scary place. And there's all kinds of people who want to convince us how against the world, how against us the world really is. They want to convince us that, that, the, that everything is just going downhill. But we hear a different truth, that the world isn't the place that we're called to be afraid of and hate. But this is the world that God is creating, the world that God loves, and the good news of the word of God being spoken to the Parthians and Edomites and all the other people from Mesopotamia and regions of Sire and Tidon or wherever they're from. The good news of that is that this is a people that if they were to say the whole world was gathered, this is what they would say. Everybody was gathered here, and everybody heard the language of God spoken in their own tongue. God loves the world and calls us to be in the world and out in the world to proclaim that love and transformation through the death and resurrection of Jesus to a world that needs so desperately to hear. Not bad news that God is just waiting to beat us, but good news that the love of God through Jesus Christ is available for everybody. And we are called to be the people who share that good news with the world. You know, and one of the myths that we believe is that it it takes a big congregation to do this. I know y'all don't do this, but some other congregations will say, well, look at all the people down at first, whatever it is, down the street. You know, we see all the cars in the parking lot there. Look at all the good they can do. 
that's fine. They're doing the things that they're called to do. But you know what they can't do? They can't be Trinity. They can't be this congregation who is called by God for a purpose and a place and a time of God's choosing where y'all are called to make the difference that you're called to make. You're not called to be first whatever. But for everyone whose lives you touch, through your kindness, through your love, through the way you share the love of Jesus Christ through the death and resurrection and the hope we have in, of new life through that, you are being the people who God has called you to be. And you are people with a purpose. And you are people with a place. And you are a people to whom God is speaking and saying that you are important too. So this week as you go out from here, and you live into this reality of Pentecost, that not only is God speaking to you, but God is speaking through you as well. Who is it God is calling you to be? And what are you going to do about it? Amen.